Hello, and welcome to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. This episode is part three of a series called Radical Compassion for a Challenging World. In these teachings, based on the Tibetan Lojong text, Seven Point Mind Training, Dorje Lopan, Dr. Han Lai, discusses how we can find freedom and happiness, regardless of our outer environment. Urban Dharma is a Buddhist temple in the heart of Asheville, North Carolina. We are supported by your generosity and by our online store, TibetanSpirit.com. To learn more about us, come visit our temple in person or look us up online at UdharmaNC.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, whether it's back in uh, North Carolina, where I, um, um, I am the CIO. <laughs> of the center, not CEO. Uh, the CIO is the chief instigating officer. So I instigate things and then things happen. Uh, I instigate things, then other people have to do the work. <laughs> so I call myself the CIO of uh, Urban Dharma in North Carolina. Um, so whether it's there or when I go to South America, uh, Central America, uh, I tend to uh, want to spend more time uh, uh, sharing uh, the little that I know about Lojong. Chiefly because I feel that the Lojong uh, tradition uh, is very applicable and uh, very helpful for many of us, especially many of us who really don't have yet uh, what traditionally we say in Buddhism, don't yet have the store of merit to be doing serious practice. (laughs) These days, everybody wants to do serious practice. Everybody wants to be arhat in one lifetime or be, you know, eighth level bodhisattva in one lifetime or, you know, you know, realizing rainbow body in one lifetime, blah, 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 all of that, right? Um, and maybe because, you know, many of us have gotten used to uh, how quickly the microwave cooks food, and so then our minds are also kind of programmed to think, you know, everything can be done very quickly and very easily. But really, if you don't have a great store of merit, if you don't have a great store of merit, you know, attempting these practices might seem to produce some immediate results, but these results might not last. And the other danger, I think, of emphasizing too much about this meditation, that meditation, you know, you, know, you go off 10 days to meditate, and then you come back, and then you go off another 10 days, and then you come back, and. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think these are helpful, but one of the side effects, I think, is that you might be doing this the way that people uh, are reliant on drugs for an escape from reality. Yeah, so you go off and have a very intensive experience for 10 days, and then you come back, and then the crap is still all around. Then you say, I will work very hard and make enough money so that I can go take off another 10 days. 
right? So you go back and forth, you know, kind of just kind of this pendulum swinging back and forth. And the other thing also that I think arises from uh, this kind of wanting to do these very intensive types of practices, or at least these practices that make all kinds of claims about how effective they are, is that sometimes we become even less nice to be around. <laughs> the more advanced we become, the more difficult it is for other people around us. <laughs> and uh, so I don't think that is changing the mind, you know. It's just wearing another badge of pride. You know, now that I have already succeeded in making my, you know, second million, I'm going to achieve second boomy. Yeah, now that I've made, you know, my 200,000 uh, in the first two years of my working life, you know, I'm going to attain, you know, this not only stream entrant, you know, it's going to be once returner, right? And meanwhile, people around us are like, oh my God, it's just impossible to be around this person. And so then, Dharma has become poison. No, or we get interested in Dharma and then we start getting all excited about debating and arguing about which Dharma is more Dharma. My Dharma is better than your Dharma. <laughs> yeah? So now that you've gone tired of you know, debating you know, whether my you know, Volvo is better than your Volkswagen, now it's, you know, my vipassana is better than your vipassana. Uh, then, dharma practice has become poison. But with lojo, there is no possibility of you becoming a bigger a-hole <laughs> after practicing than before practicing. There's just absolutely no way. Yeah, you just look at this and you say, I'm going to be number one. It's not going to work. It's not possible. You know. So this is so safe. The only one danger I see with Lojong, and here we have to be very careful about this, the only one danger I see with Lojong is if you misunderstand a fundamental element of Lojong, you might end up becoming everybody else's doormat. You might end up becoming every else's doormat. Uh, over dinner, I was sharing with some uh, Dharma friends uh, a characteristic about the Tibetan people. I say, contrary to popular belief, Tibetans are not naturally peaceful, calm, and nice. They are not peace-loving people by nature. I'm not saying that they're bad people. What I'm pointing out is, Tibetans lived in a very harsh environment. 
some of us forget. We think, oh, Tibet is like Shangri-La. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, everybody just smiling, live very long lives, you know. No, until recently, life expectancy in Tibet is about 50. Yeah, you live to 40, oh wow, you know. This is like, you have lived a very long life. Um, so life was very tough in Tibet. Yeah? We're talking about, what, uh, you know, uh, an average elevation of about 12,000. 12 to 15,000 uh, cold and harsh and dry there are places in Tibet when people live their whole lives they have never seen a tree no trees they've never seen a tree before except for trees painted on the monastery walls so life was very tough in Tibet. And so as a result, the people too are very tough. And so in Tibetan culture, there's deep respect for people who are very tough. They respect very tough spiritual practitioners and they respect very tough robbers and thugs. Mm -hmm. and the local chief mm -hmm. and they have absolutely no respect mm -hmm. for people with no backbone mm -hmm. because they say you know you're wasting your life away right? you either become a tough spiritual practitioner or you become a tough bully mm -hmm. at least then at the very least you will benefit your village Nobody will dare to come to your village to try to steal anything if you're a tough chief. Because resources are very limited. So, Lojong in a way developed over time in Tibet to serve as a balance to that toughness. And not just a balance, more importantly, to channel that toughness. And so, even though the language here is the language of, sometimes we look at it, you know, maybe not in this audience, but outside of this audience, if you go show someone this, they say, you crazy? If you live like that, huh, everybody will take advantage of you. But you see, Lojong training is not so that you become you know, the doormat for people to wipe their feet on you. So first, you need to appreciate the toughness. So if you have a lot of pride, this is a very good way of practice. If you are very confident, this is an excellent teaching. In fact, Laura Tisha said, I mentioned this, he said that uh, of his three teachers uh, that taught him the most about bodhicitta, two of them were Indians. The third one, uh, Dhammakiriti, of Suvarnabhumi, which is this area, Suvarnabhumi. Uh, many people say it's Sumatra, but it's unclear whether it's Sumatra or actually uh, on the peninsula. 
But this whole area is Varnabhumi. And Sir Lingpa, uh, Tibetans call him Sir Lingpa. Uh, Sir Ling means uh, golden island. Suvarnadipa. And Atisha said the kindest of the three to him, in his mind, the one that benefited him the most was Dharmakirti of Suvarnabhumi. And in particular, uh, Suvarnabhumi, uh, Dharmakirti's approach, it is said that uh, his approach to uh, practicing the Dharma bears some resemblances to non-Buddhist views. Very interesting. And for each of the three teachers on Bodhicitta that Atisha had, it said that the two Indian teachers, only one of them uh, was a follower of the middle way Madhyamaka philosophical tradition. Yeah, which in Nalanda tradition that's considered the highest view uh, but only one of the three actually was a follower of the Madhyamaka uh, the other one was apparently a follower of a so-called Hinayana philosophical view but his practice of Bodhicitta was so great and so we normally say Hinayana don't have Bodhisattva path uh, not true in this case one of his teachers uh, were follower of a so-called Hinayana tradition, but was one of the strongest uh, practitioners and teachers of Bodhicitta. Then, with Dharmakirti in Suvarnabhumi, it says that his philosophical view resembled that of non-Buddhists. And you think, oh, that's very strange. Uh, what, what, what is Atisha talking about? Atisha said, with, Sir, with, with Dharmakirti of Suvarnabhumi, he, the way he taught his students is that he's not so concerned to begin by teaching them anatta. He wasn't concerned about that. Huh? Those of you who are not used to that term, not self, huh? which is said to be yeah, the Buddhist, right? Kind of uh, the unique Buddhist teaching. But it said that uh, uh, Dhammakirti, he, he didn't concern himself with that. At least not at the beginning. He began with self grasping. In fact, it said that he began by saying, you should have a strong sense of self. And if you have a strong sense of self, then you are the prime candidate for this training. Very interesting. If you have a strong sense of self, then you are the prime candidate for this Lojong training. And actually, um, if, if we look deeper in the Buddha's teachings, I tend to think and agree that in fact, Lojong or not, that is true. That Buddha did not teach anatta 
as some sort of belief for us to believe in. He taught anatta as a strategy, as a noble strategy for freeing us from dukkha. But over time, Buddhists have turned that into part of the Buddhist branding. Many things that Buddha taught as strategies for transcending dukkha. Over time, as Buddha Dharma turned into Buddhism, as part of the branding process, it has become uh, associated with the Buddhist brand. Uh, so then, whoever uh, was a consumer of the Buddhist brand had to believe in anatta, anicca, blah, blah, blah. You know? But the Buddha did not teach any of these things for you to believe in. He taught these things for you to use them, to apply them. So, we don't have to start with not-self or no-self. We start with whatever your sense of self right now, we work with that. And this is part of also the Lojong style. We work with that. So that's some of the background, some of the characteristics of Lojong. So Lojong doesn't uh, involve long and many hours of meditating quietly in the room. It talks about mindfulness for sure. But its mindfulness is more about in the context of in relation with others. In relation with other people in relation with situation in relation with things. In Chinese. In relation to people, in relation to conditions, situations, and in relation to things. So when you meet someone, when you interact with someone, how are you going to do it? When you come in relation with something, uh, how are you going to relate to it? Uh, When you come into a particular situation, how are you going to react to it? That's where Lojong practice is. That's the battlefield for Lojong. Not necessarily when you quiet your mind and you see your thoughts and then you see, you know, Uh, mental formations going on, releasing mental formations, so on and so forth. Now, Lojong is not saying that's not necessary. (laughs) That that kind of training is is important to to become Buddha. Uh, But again, most of us, we might be able to get a taste of that, to kind of see how our mind works, but often... Once that retreat is over, 
it's hard for us to maintain that level of mindfulness yeah? of knowing oh now it's mental formations yeah? practically yeah? If, unless you're retired practically and even if you're retired you know then there's grandkids yeah? practically it's very hard to maintain that but if you can do that you know wonderful but I in my kind of uh, and maybe because also I'm a lazy meditator, so then I choose to, you know, focus on things like this. And so I'll be frank as well. You know. uh, so I can just share with you what I know. I cannot, you know, sell things that I have never used myself. Um, but these teachings, you know, the kind of alertness or, or mindfulness that they call for is very doable. Uh, I want to borrow from a different tradition in the Confucian tradition, not the confused tradition, but the Confucian tradition, which, you know, everyone in this room, I assume, uh, of Chinese descent. So somewhere in our DNA, you know, Confucius is lurking back there, waiting to pounce on you. Um, so in the Confucian tradition, mm, there is one quality that Confucius considered to be uh, the central quality uh, in, in his teachings. Uh, do you all know what that one is? Huh? Uh, that's a much later, Xiao is a much later, that's a Ming Dynasty Confucian tradition. Very strange. It turned into Xiao. Uh, no, uh, I would say in Confucius, uh, if you look at Lun Yu, Xiao is important, of course, but it's not the central. Does anyone know? Ren. Yeah, Ren. Uh, so Ren to Ren, yeah. Uh, Ren is often translated into English as benevolence, human-heartedness, kindness, uh, all, all those meanings. Kindness, human-heartedness, uh, benevolence, goodness, right? But if you look at the character Ren, how is it written? How is it written? Can someone, can, can you please write here big, a big Ren? <laughs> That's very instructive, I think, here. And this is really related to Lo Zhong. Okay. Okay. So this is the character huh, for Ren. Yeah, and uh, what's interesting with this character is uh, if, you, if you want to play with it, Yeah, there's two parts, right? There's two parts to this character, yeah? Uh, on the right side is the character for human. On the left side is the character for what? Two. So here, what we learn from this is, where is Ren to be found? It is to be found 
in the interaction that takes place between two people. So in the early Confucian tradition, they have an emphasis on jing zuo, right? silent sitting. And then later, Xuan Xue in Confucian tradition really emphasized Jing Zhuo. That is under the influence of China. But in the early part of Confucianism, they do have silent sitting, the equivalent of our meditation. But they say the main training is not silent sitting. Yeah? They, they found that to be too negative. They say that's too focused on you. I think there's some valid criticism to that. Some meditators are too wrapped up in their own thing. So the Confucian tradition has emphasized that you cannot find kindness, human-heartedness, benevolence by only sitting quietly in a room. You will only find it you can only show it, you can only exercise it in relation with another person. So where do you find Ren? You find Ren in the context of two people interacting. So in the same way, I think very similarly, Lo Zhong is saying, when it comes right down to it, how well your practice is going on, is only to be seen when you come face to face with someone else, and in this case, not just someone else, something else, or some situation. Okay? So those are the three. Some, someone else, another being, or another thing, or another situation. Right? You and a situation. Okay? Then we know, have we trained bodhicitta or not? If we were to summarize Lojong, and I, I can think of a famous uh, saying uh, that attributed to Atisha. Atisha said, when in the company of others, watch your words. When alone, watch your mind. <laughs> Simple words, but so true. When in the company of others, watch your words. Not just watch your words in terms of like, you know, don't say harsh things, but also watch and see how you manipulate others through your words. Yeah. Yeah, you want them to do certain things, you want them to behave certain ways, and our calculative, manipulative way. Huh? More than actions, it's words. And then when alone. Huh? When we are alone, we think, oh, nobody knows. You know? So then our mind starts planning all kinds of things. Huh? Tisha say, when alone, watch your mind. When among others, watch your words. That if we need a summary for Lojo, that is a good summary. And when it comes to words, I have said that of all the, you know, we talk about the 10 non-virtues, 
Do you know the ten non-virtues? The akusala, huh? akusala dhamma, akusala kama, huh? the ten non-virtues. The first three has to do with killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. Three that pertains to the body. Then that there's the four that pertains to speech. Yeah, uh, I have found a, a nice way of remembering it. Uh, I call them the uh, four Ds. So I'll give you this way of remembering. So I think of the ten non-virtues, actually the speech ones are the most difficult. <laughs> most of us don't live in a society that we need to be concerned about, am I killing or not killing? Yeah? So most of us don't live in that condition, you know. And praise Allah, we're not in that situation. Uh, and. Um, we don't, we don't, uh, you know, routinely, uh, you know, go about stealing. Again, we don't live in a society where we feel that the only way to, 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 you know, not be hungry uh, is to go steal. Uh, and sexual misconduct, uh, we're a pretty conservative society, so you know, a little bit of indiscretion here and there, but it's not a daily thing that you have to worry about. Uh, but speech, oh, that's tough. So the four D's, deceptive speech, that's the first. Destructive speech, hateful speech, divisive speech, divisive speech. And then the fourth is distracting speech, which is the idle chatter and gossip distracting. At the root of that, it's not so much gossip, it's not so much idle chatter, it's because it is distracting. So these are the four types of speech that we have to guard. So deceptive, destructive, divisive, distracted. The type of speech that sows discord. You tell this person, that person said this thing about you. You tell this person, that person, that they said this about you, and this and that, and just to divide people. And then of the four, I think the most, the, the, the most obviously harmful is destructive, hateful speech. Uh, but that's the easiest to abstain from. The least obviously harmful is distracted speech. But that's the most difficult to avoid. <laughs> because when human beings get together over a cup of gobi oil, then it starts. Blah, 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 blah. Especially in Sangha, in, in the context of Buddhist communities, watch out for that one. The reason is, I think, um, let's say three people sit and talk, you know. Inevitably, we'll be talking about a fourth person that is not there. 
problem has not yet arisen. Problem arises when another person walks by, and they only hear one one slice, one slice of this conversation, and then they hear something and they say, "These people think in this way about that person." Then either this person believes it or doesn't believe it. Either way, harm has been caused. But the, the, the terrible thing about that situation is the three of us engaging in that talk don't even intend uh, to harm this person here. It's just the way we feel closer together when we're talking about someone else. I mean, face it, that's how we feel closeness. Uh, we're not even like malicious uh, because that's destructive talk. And, and certainly we sometimes engage in that. But most of the time, we don't intend to harm. So that's why even, you know, that's why you say, well, why, why is the Buddha so picky, you know? Why, why can I not have idle chatter? It's because the harm that is caused by idle chatter is not immediately obvious. But oftentimes, that is the source of all other disharmony and misunderstanding among friends, among family, among society. And so, really need to watch that. So now come back to the text. <laughs> Easily distracted, bad meditator. <laughs> um, so the third point here, uh, so each of these seven points have a basic kind of purpose or summary. Here it is, this whole section is called taking adversities onto the path of awakening. How to take adversities, how to take unwanted, unfriendly conditions. So how, how basically it means, how, how should we um, relate to uh, conditions and situations that, are, that we perceive to be unfriendly, unconducive? Uh, undesirable. Uh, how should we? So this section is focused on that. So the first line here, or the first slogan, these are slogans. Uh, uh, 59 slogans, or 59 uh, aphorisms. Uh, in Chinese, I guess you could call them culture. Uh, so if you can remember these 59, and always have them uh, in your mind. And then you can apply them in all life situations. So here, the first uh, uh, slogan in this section is, when the world is filled with negativity, transform adversities into the awakening path. When the world is filled with negativity, transform adversities to the awakening path. Most of the time, we do the opposite. When the world is filled with negativity, let's go to Buddha. Please, 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 I promise to be good. Or we go to Jesus, or, you know, we go to, I don't know, Ganesh, or whatever, you know. 
please, please, I promise to be good. Then we are waiting for something to happen. And here it says, when the world is filled with negativity, in terms of negative conditions and negative people, that is our chance to turn it into something positive. I, for one, is guilty for complaining about <laughs> the haze that is outside. No amount of my complaining about it, whether in talking to people or putting on Facebook, does anything to help the situation. But we are so in the habit that if we can talk about it, then we feel better. But no good. I have not done anything good in complaining about it. Yeah? So how are we going to do some good with this? From the Lojong tradition, the first thing is to um, later there is one thing that says um, further down, contemplate the great kindness of everyone. There right, we can think right, the kindness right, of all the people and all the conditions that have gone into making this possible meaning this room that we're seated in. We could either dwell on the haze or we could dwell on how fortunate we are that we are not needing to be out there working to support our families and have no choice but to breathe that air. And that we're inside. We are comfortably inside. So we generate gratitude in that sense. Then, what else can we do? Uh, a great idea, uh, Brother Chu was telling me, um, uh, his kids' school, parents have organized themselves into buying these masks to distribute in school. Uh, some of you have kids, some of you have grandkids. Uh, if you can go instigate that at your schools, great. But then you say, no, actually, it's too much work. I understand. You're not a bad person. I won't call you a jerk. <laughs> but here you can still do something. If you have kids, right? Um, why not? Don't just give them one. Right? Don't just only give your kid. You, you, you give one to your kid, and you give three more to your kid, and say, please go to school. And any of your friends who don't have this, please give it to them. It doesn't cost that much. You have done some good. Not more, and more importantly, you have taught your child how to be kind. But that's very simple things that we can do. 
And so if you buy one for yourself, always buy two. One you can give away. There is someone that needs it. And most of us, if we can buy one, buying the second one is not going to bankrupt you. Uh, buying the second one is not even going to make a difference uh, if, you know, 20 years down the road, you are needing money for your hospital money. That second one is not going to buy you 20 minutes in the hospital. So forget about it. Uh, just spend it. Yeah, so this is, uh, when the world is filled with negativity, transforming adversities into the path of awakening. We can do something about it. There are things that we can't do anything about. But there are you know, actual things that we can do to help. The next slogan, drive all blames into one. Drive all blames into one. When things go wrong, when things don't go our way, immediately we need to find who to blame. Uh, most of the time we blame other people. Some of us are experts at blaming ourselves. Both are not skillful. Blaming other people or blaming yourself. Both are not skillful. Here, what is this one? Self-grasping. Self-fixation. See, not self. Don't drive all blame into yourself. There's a difference between self and self-grasping. The Buddha had no problem with a healthy sense of self. The Buddha was concerned about self-grasping, self-fixation. We fixate on me, I, I, me, mine. Instead of self-fixation and self-grasping, Buddha actually taught the basis of forming a healthy self. <coughs> he might not have used these words, huh? but if you look at the teaching psychologically, it's very clear huh? that the Buddha taught that a healthy sense of self can and should be cultivated on the basis of especially dana and sila. Cultivate generosity of heart. Cultivate openness of heart. Cultivate a giving heart. One, one aspect. The other aspect is cultivate non-harming, which is the gist of Sheila. Not harming. The precepts and the vows is not about being austere, being strict, and being legalistic. Now, over the weekend, I was teaching in another place, and I, I, I kind of pointed out that one of the consequences of the Dharma going to China 
is that sometimes I feel that Sheila is a precepts, cultivation of moral ethics, have been too closely linked uh, to um, kind of this moralistic attitude. Oh, you're immoral, you're so loose. And that's not kind. With this, vows and precepts is basically to help make us kinder people. And if on the basis of Sheila, we look down on others, then it's not Sheila practice. In fact, one of the obstacles to enlightenment, which a Shrotapana, a stream entrant destroys is the first two. The one is wrong views of self. The second is adherence to rites, rituals, and actually vows. Because in ancient India, the Brahmins are very good at keeping rules, but there is no kindness in that kind of keeping rules. So. There is the kind of vegetarianism practiced as a sign of purity and class, which is how the Brahmins practice vegetarianism. It's a sign of high class that they don't eat huh, animals. But with this avocation of vegetarian, it's not that. That's why in early Buddhism, there's no emphasis on vegetarianism. It's a historical fact. Because if the Buddha made vegetarianism a rule, then it symbolized to his audience that this is an exclusive Brahmin religion. More important than that is for him to make very clear that your, your character is not to be measured by your class but to be measured by how kind you are and so he says not by birth is one a Brahmin but by one's actions but if those actions become kind of the basis for pride which sometimes that's how we observe Sheila then it defeats the purpose and so Buddha gave us you know teachings on dana and sila so that we can form a healthy sense of self. Right? Then when we have a healthy sense of self, when we have self-confidence, when we have a happy sense of self, then we can do bhavana. If you try bhavana or meditation before you have a healthy sense of self, that could lead to psychosis. Yes. Because bhavana, part of meditation is the job of going into your psyche, right? And performing a bypass. And if you're not strong enough to withstand a bypass, right here, a psychological bypass, you will die. So this is what we mean by merit. 
where I say we don't have enough merit to really become super meditators. But some people still want to be. So then psychosis. Deep psychological problems will arise. So back away from that. Learn first how to cultivate generosity and moral ethics on the basis of kindness. And come to something like Lojo. So driving all blames into one is to drive to, to, to gain an understanding that all the unhappiness, whether the personal unhappiness or universal unhappiness, personal or impersonal, private or public, good and not good, arises from uh, or lack of self-grasping. When we are fixated on the self, in fact, we are not able to fulfill the desires of the self. What do we all desire? Uh, at the root of all desires is what? Yep. Happiness. At the root of all desires is happiness. So you and I are not that different. And you and all those criminals out there, not that different. You and the terrorists, not that different. We and the people burning the forest, not that different. At the root of it, we are all looking for happiness. But how we go about achieving this happiness is where all the difference is. Up until now, the way we think we can achieve this happiness is through self-grasping, fixating on the self. But when you fixate on the self, you destroy your own happiness. No one can destroy our happiness as efficiently as ourselves. Shantideva says, the worst harmer, assassin, can only take one life, can only take you, take your one life away. Yes? The most expert murderer, assassin, at most, can take only one life. Your one life. But your unskillful actions can throw you into the hell realms repeatedly. <coughs> Unendingly. So who should you fear more? At most, you know, they can just torture you for one life. But your unskillful actions will lead to life after life 
of the hell realms. Uh, hard to say. Those things are complicated. But don't do it. <laughs> complicated. Oh, yes, 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 absolutely. Um, but telling them that, you know, they'll go to the hell realms, not very skillful either. In the old days, it might help. These days, people are like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I have bigger problems now. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so, so instead of blaming, you know, this and that and up and down, left and right, see that, you know, whatever unhappy situation that we're in, it's not because of me. Huh? Don't blame yourself. Because blaming yourself is a form of self-fixation. So realize the nature of self huh? to be unstable, to be uncertain, to be subject to change. And then relinquish the burden of self-fixation. Then, as the other side of driving all blame into self-fixation, then, on the other hand, contemplate the great kindness of everyone. And think, oh, so kind, everybody. Now you could say, wait, is this true or not true? Actually, I would say, but this way is not usually guided by true or not true. I know, this might sound a little bit controversial. Because we like to say, Buddha's teaching is on the truth. Capital T. <laughs> Bold. Bolded and capital T truth. Uh, but I think, again, Buddha's method is more about is it skillful or not? Of course we are concerned about truth because ultimately that which is skillful coincides with that which is true. Yeah? That which is skillful coincides with that which is true. But it is more skillful to look at it from the side of what is more skillful rather than what is more true. Because what is more true might sometimes be an abstraction based on intellectual nonsense. And you call it truth. Yeah? But the truth yeah? has no value. Yeah? So in the Zen tradition, it's a funny saying. Uh, one Kongan has a student asking the teacher, what is Buddha? And the teacher's answer? Basically, uh, the teacher said, a dried shit stick. <laughs> what is a shit stick? <laughs> Ex 
uh, pardon my French, so to say. What is a shit stick? It's basically ancient toilet paper. People use the stick to clean themselves. You can save. How can you save with that? It's a dry shit stick. Why is Buddha, you know, old toilet paper? <laughs> so sometimes we think, oh Buddha, like like the capital T truth, oh Buddha. Here, partly, this answer is saying, Buddha, the notion of Buddha, is that which cleans you. That which cleans you, whatever purifies which is nothing more basic and important than toilet paper. <laughs> so stated in very practical terms, Buddha is what you use to clean yuck out of you. But sometimes we let this Buddha become dried. So, using a dry shit stick is very uncomfortable. So you should keep it fresh. Don't let Buddha turn it into like some, you know, something so holy and so special that when you need to use it, it becomes very uncomfortable. Yeah, so here, back to the question, Is it true that everybody is kind to us? Well, I don't know if it is true or not. Although Shantideva has some arguments that he uses to show, yes, of course they are. But let's lay aside that here simply to see you have two choices. You can either say that everybody is not kind to me or everybody is kind to me. Now, as an experiment, wake up one day, and meditate on how everybody is not kind to you. At the end of the day, tell me what kind of a day you had. Next day, wake up and make a resolution to see how everybody is so kind to you. And then at the end of that day, tell me what kind of day you've had. Just think about it. Don't believe me, just try it. If you try and you say, oh, much better day when I think everybody is just mean to me, then good, at least you have found the method to happiness. <laughs> yeah, don't need to believe, Lojong. Try it. And try this. Contemplate the great kindness of everyone. Then it is as if everywhere you turn, your benefactor is there smiling at you. And when you see everybody as a benefactor kind to you, your, your, your smile, your genuineness will even affect the other person. And even if the other person is a low-paying you know, government official sitting behind the counter, 
intent to make your life miserable, but because right, your attitude to that person is different, it will change them. It will change them. The next, this is a little bit more philosophical. Seeing illusory appearance, appearances as the four kayas is, in, uh, is unsurpassable protection of emptiness. So first, the unsurpassable protection of emptiness. How can we get unfailing protection? Protection from what? Protection from suffering or unhappiness. Yeah? I mean, again, at the end, you know, just as the statement, what do we all desire? Happiness. What do we all not desire? Suffering. So that's ultimately... Huh? all the protection that we uh, institute in our lives. Uh, the lock to your car, the lock to your house, uh, the uh, security system, everything. Uh, and then all the tangkai sampo that you wear. <laughs> all of that, yeah? And, and your personal bodyguard that you hire, if you have those. Uh, all of that is basically to protect you from suffering. Right? So then, what is the best kind of protection from suffering? Remove self-grasping. <coughs> Remove self-fixation. No self, no problem. Big self, big problem. If you own, the Tibetan saying is, uh, if you have one yak, you have the suffering of one yak. If you have two yaks, if you have two cows, you have the suffering of two cows. If you have 40 cows, you have the suffering of 40 cows. But I joke about how I can imagine suffering if I have only one Rolls Royce. <laughs> yeah, because you know, you've got to be so careful about it. But when I have 99 Rolls Royce, I'm completely not attached. <laughs> one scratch up, well, it doesn't matter. 98. <laughs> Yeah, the problem is, you know, yeah, the problem is between zero and about 60-something. After that, it's all easy. <laughs> but here, the best protection is the protection of emptiness. And emptiness here doesn't mean not having anything. Emptiness here is talking about a type of realization, a wisdom that we gain. The wisdom of seeing that nothing exists in and of themselves 
and everything exists interdependently. And if everything is due to interdependence, then nothing remains unchanging. When you begin to relate to everything, every person, every situation that way, it's a much lighter approach that you have. It's not a burdensome approach that you have towards life. There's a lot more space. There's a lot more freedom when you're able to see the emptiness of every situation. Uh, emptiness here is talking about emptiness of what we call inherent existence. Emptiness of an unchanging element. We tend to think that unchanging is good, right? We like words like eternal, eternal life. And so whenever missionaries come to my door and say, what do you think about eternal life? I'm so tempted, but I never have the guts to say it. <laughs> I'm so tempted to tell the truth to say, I think it will be really boring. <laughs> think about it, what eternal life actually means. That means forever, you know. <laughs> No joke forever. And if you're stuck in the Christian heaven, supposedly forever you'll be singing hymns to God. Forever. I even joke, I said, if I was God, I might have to kill myself. <laughs> if forever I have to listen to people singing hymns to me. Like forever. <laughs> if it's forever, that means it's fixed, right? That means no more possibility of enjoying soccer, football. It's really fixed. You know exactly what's going to happen. So I don't think we have thought through this forever business, eternal. But you see, foolishly, we want everything to be eternal, unchanging. So when Buddha says that everything is subject to change, we say, why you are so negative? <laughs> no, actually, it's a message of liberation. From the Buddha is pointing out that when something is fixed, then it's dead. There is no movement anymore. That which is eternal is that which is stuck and fixed. As opposed to that which is dynamic. And so... Emptiness is one way of stating the dynamic nature of reality, which here is expressed as illusory appearances as the four kayas. 
But four kaya is dharmakaya, sambhogakaya, nirmanakaya, and sobhavikaya, uh, which is the natural body. This is usually found only in Vajrayana material. Mahayana material, you have the three bodies Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, and then the Vajrayana material, we talk about the Swabhavikakaya, which is the natural body, which is the three bodies inseparable, is the fourth body. Uh, very briefly, there are many ways of explaining this, but I'll give one simple one. We, we tend, tend to think that these four kayas are something that only Buddhists have. And it's true. When you achieve Buddha, you achieve these four kayas. But here is saying, saying that you should see illusory appearances, which means what? Everything that we experience. We should experience them as the four kayas. Yeah, so this is the other side of emptiness. Form. Emptiness is form. Form is emptiness. Normally, we only think about form is emptiness. So Buddhists have a slight tendency towards nihilism. Psychologically, Buddhists have a slight tendency towards depression. <laughs> Mildly depressive. Yeah. If you are a member of the place of worship two doors away, you are slightly manic. <laughs> Always very happy. Then you're attracted to that kind of spirituality. Everything is very hopeful all the time. Buddhists as a group, a little bit depressive. And so we tend to veer in the direction of emptiness. But don't forget, huh? emptiness is also form. So that's why in the Vajrayana tradition, there's so much emphasis on forms. So not enough to have one Kuan Yin. One Kuan Yin needs to have five colors. <laughs> then you cannot even keep track of which color and how many hands and how many feet. <laughs> Why? It's not really that complicated. It's pointing out that when you have full realization, forms are no longer a problem. Sound, no longer a problem. Smell, taste, touch, no longer a problem. They are all illusory display of this dynamic nature of reality. No need to fight with sound, smell, taste, touch. It is not things that bind us. It is our fixation that binds us. Naropa says, you know, says Dilopa says Naropa, he says one of the ancient uh, Indian masters, Tilopa said that in our tradition, uh, we, we do not relinquish appearances. And that means we do not renounce appearances. We do not reject appearances. 
we reject fixation. We abandon fixation. So here is saying, don't don't just think of it in terms of emptiness, because the other side of emptiness is form. So that's what these two lines are. The next line, the best of methods is the four practices. So what are these four practices? The best of is the four practices. So these four practices, um, the uh, they uh, on the surface they look like they are kind of ritual uh, practices, yeah. Um, but actually, uh, well, let's talk about what they are first. Uh, so these four practices. The first one is the accumulation of merit. So I've already spoken on the the meaning of accumulation of merit. Sometimes we think accumulation of merit is about doing dana, right? Feeding monks and nuns, uh, lighting candles, so on and so forth, and all these things, releasing birds, releasing cats. No, people don't release cats, they release fish. I don't know, you know. People don't eat cats, I guess, so they don't have to release cats. Um, so releasing whatever, right? So we think, okay, that's, that's merit. Mm, of course, yes, that's merit. Hello, cat. It's a little kitten out there. Um, it's really cute. Um, but sometimes, Buddhists get so obsessed with making merit that we we kind of lose sight of what exactly are we talking about we turn merit into like a private bank account on the other side so we hoard up merit because we think we need to have merit to spend right when we transition to the other side then because there's so much merit in building temples, between building a temple and a clinic, let's build another temple. It's not merit. These days, if you ask me, of course there is merit in lighting candles, lamps as offerings, But maybe there is just as much merit, if not more, in planting trees. We should start a Buddhist movement of planting trees as merit-making. There's enough, if you ask me, I think there's too much releasing random fish into rivers. Create all kinds of environmental problems that will come back and haunt us. Um, but it would be so great if we can get Buddhists obsessed with planting trees. That's what we need. There are many kinds of acts of kindness that we can do. 
What produces merit is not just doing these things, but doing these things and feeling joy. You have to feel joy. Then it produces merit. Otherwise, randomly doing these things will not produce merit. And what is merit? Merit is that which fuels our path, our practice. Without merit, no success in practice. Actually, without merit, no success even in ordinary life. So I use a translation in the West for merit. It's virtuous self-esteem. It's merit. That's what merit is. When you have done something good and you rejoice and you feel good about it, then that gives you tremendous self-esteem. You feel good about yourself. And when you feel good about yourself, you're inspired to practice the Dharma. If you're not a Dharma practitioner, then you're inspired to go make a lot of money. So that's why they say, you need merit to be rich. Because you feel good about yourself. You're inspired, you're motivated. So merit, Another way of translating merit, I feel, in psychological terms, it's virtuous self-esteem. But as we also know, simply with merit but no wisdom, then it can deliver worldly happiness but not liberation. Like, true, if you just have virtuous self-esteem, you might make a lot of money in the world, but you're not going to get out of this cycle. So you need wisdom. But these four practices, the first practice is accumulation of merit. So accumulation of merit can be done in many, many ways. Making offerings to Buddha Dharma Sangha making offerings to those who need our help. So many, many ways. And even if we don't have the actual physical means to make merit, by rejoicing in other people's merit, we accumulate merit. In fact, they say, Between you making your own merit and you rejoicing in someone else's merit, actually the second one is better. Not that you should stop the first one. So some people say, I I just rejoice in your merit. Why don't you give away those things? I will rejoice in it. And the reason why they say it's, it's, it's even better if you rejoice in others' merit is that there's no pride involved. Whereas when you accumulate your own merit, hmm, oh, people are clapping. You're like, mm. 
Yes. <laughs> huh? Yes, I'm the chief sponsor. That's why I'm standing in front of everybody. Ooh. <laughs> so, a little bit dangerous. But if you learn how to rejoice, but of course, that's not easy too. So especially if we, are, we have kind of low self-esteem, right? See, this is how Dharma can be turned into poison food. We have low self-esteem, which doesn't mean you're a bad person. That's just the condition you're in. So I'm not judging. I'm pointing out. We have kind of low self-esteem. Then we go to a Dharma occasion. Then we see all the main sponsors, yeah? all standing in front. And so here we go, hmm, these people, the only one name. What is this? No, Buddha didn't teach this. So we can use all kinds of Buddhist things to judge other people. And so we don't know how to rejoice in other people's merit. And so we see wealthy people, then we might even have use our Buddhism to judge them. Ah, these people living like they're in the daylight realm. They will fall and go to the hell realms. <laughs> jealousy and we shouldn't do that when we see other people uh, enjoying their life uh, doing good in the world we rejoice we rejoice in that we rejoice in that and not just rejoicing by uh, repeating the rejoicing mantra okay oh, sadu, sadu, sadu. <laughs> Yeah. Or in Chinese, what are you talking about? And it has to come from the heart. Yeah. Then the second practice is the practice of purifying negative karma. The way to do that is, when suffering arises, use that as, a, as an opportunity to purify a negative karma. See, when suffering arises, it's the ripening of a negative karma. But that's not purifying negative karma. That's just the ripening of negative karma. But what you can do when suffering arises is to, on top of the ripening of that particular karma, you can further purify other karma. Yeah? Which is, when suffering arises, you say, let me take on the suffering of others right now. May my experience of this suffering free everyone from the need of experiencing suffering. Then when you're able to do that sincerely, you will burn off negative karma. You will purify negative karma. Instead, again, we do the opposite. Because the self-fixation, uh, when we suffer, we try to torture other people. <laughs> yes, because misery loves company. That's how samsara works. It's not even that we are bad people, but we are stuck in this habitual pattern. And so Rojo challenges us to act wisely. So you take on the suffering. 
but you take on the suffering not in the from a state of weakness, but with a lot of confidence and strength, and say, "I can take on the suffering. It's fine." So that's one way to purify negative karma. Very easy, this practice. All very easily applied if you want to apply it. <laughs> the third is called making offerings to malevolent forces. <laughs> yes, making offerings to hantu, ghosts, evil spirits, troublemakers. Normally, we say, don't, right? Normally, again, we have our uh, Buddha protecting force. Every door has something you stick on top, you know, to deflect everything. Here, it says, a supreme method is to make offerings to negative forces. You say, well, that's a little bit dangerous. Here, first you have to have some kind of meditation understanding of emptiness. And remember the lines before this? And the best protection is the unsurpassed protection of emptiness, which is the seeing of illusory appearances as the four kayas, right? Then within that understanding, they say, you prepare uh, offerings, right? You set out offerings. And then you call all your karmic debtors to come. They say these yanqing zaiju. All those that you owe a karmic debt to, you say, come here now. And you say, those who want to cause me harm, those who want to... Uh, damage my reputation those who want to do bad things to me all of you please come here now then it says in the commentary when they arrive you should see them as Buddhas and Bodhisattvas <coughs> you should imagine them as Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and so don't think of them with you know long hair, you know, <laughs> long tongue. Think of them as all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Right? Don't think of them as you know the Guthaubabin and all that. But think of them as all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Then it says, you do this prayer sincerely to them and say. You are all so kind to me. In the past, you have supported me. You have even given your life to me as food, as protection, which is true. That's, that's why they want us to suffer, because we have killed them in the past. You say, you have been so kind to me. I feel so much gratitude to you. Because of me, you have suffered so much. 
But you have been so kind. Yeah? And you say, because of you, you have led me to practicing Lojong. Now I'm practicing Bodhicitta all because of you. And so because of you, now I have found the source of happiness. So please continue to give me all the suffering that you want to give me. It says. And please never, never leave me alone. But instead, remain close to me. Please do not depart. It says here in the commentary. Instead, stay inside this body and mind and ensure that this sickness is not cured. Then it says, after you do that and you make these offerings, you imagine they receive the offerings and they are all happy, then you feel joyful and you let go of your attachment to body and mind. And no fear. Because now, your karmic debtors, all the evil spirits, have become Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And so they say this technique is the technique of putting the robber into the position of the king. So they have no choice but to behave themselves. And putting the position, putting the robber into the position of the king. So they have to behave themselves. Now, over the weekend I shared, I said, I remember when I was in high school, uh, at free school, uh, uh, one year, I mean, during my year, you know, they, uh, the school uh, elected, uh, you know, every year teachers uh, select prefects. And so, they selected the most troublesome kid, made him a prefect. Problem solved. <laughs> he could no longer cause trouble. Yeah, the, the other kids that followed him to cause trouble have just been deprived of a gang leader. He's now the prefect. So yeah, that's the method. Now. The commentary also say, if you're not able to do that, if you don't have the guts to do that, <laughs> then you can, do, you can still make offerings to them, but you, you use the method of truthful words, they say. <clears throat> Which is, again, prepare all the offerings. Yeah? So we do this actually, right? The seven months or whatever. So next time seven month comes rolling around, you can try either of these methods. But no guarantee, okay? Whatever happens to you. <laughs> but no, really. The second method is, they say, prepare all your offerings. And then you, 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 you invite them to come. This time when they come, you should be in the form of Kuan Yin. 
or whatever Buddha form that you feel close to yourself now you are the deity then you invite them all to come and then you say to them you say since all of you are intent on causing me harm and obstructing my practice of bodhicitta essentially you are causing the happiness of all sentient beings to decline and because of that you're going to be reborn in the hell realms life after life so now is the time to stop this the reason that we have this unpleasant negative relationship is because in the past you have been motivated by self-grasping I have been motivated by self-grasping but now I have now resolved to practice driving all blames into one self-grasping I have now pledged myself to practice this so I invite you to also consider this at the very least if you are not ready to practice this then take these offerings and, and depart from here and don't cause obstructions to me because it will only result in you having even more suffering so please accept these offerings and go so that's the second way of making offerings to negative spirits so don't go to bonus <laughs> or whatever gong you know whatever Sintuan yes, and all that um, those are not reliable those are temporary fix that's just hiring temporary bodyguard when you enter the bar though they cannot go with you they say that so, so if you rely on worldly gods to protect you from harm from these negative forces yeah, they might be able to protect you right until this life ends. And then when you enter into the intermediate state between this and next life, then all those things have access to you. And you cannot be protected by these worldly gods. The fourth is to offer, make offerings to Dharma protectors. So here is to uh, the benevolent spirits, those who have pledged to protect the Buddha Sasana. So you make offerings to them in appreciation for their work of supporting the Dharma, supporting Dharma practitioners, right? and you pray to them to um, <clears throat> give you the proper conditions for cultivating Lojana. Rather than 
I want this, 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 and that. Because unreliable worldly gods might give you what you want. But giving you what you want basically means what? Depleting your positive karma. Yeah, think about it. Giving you what you want so much is just depleting your, your positive karma. Then, then when that comes quickly, it also means your positive karma is finished quickly. Then what else turns up next? Negative karma. Whereas if you rely on proper like dharma protecting deities, and dharma palas, dharma guardians, they might even do something that seems not positive. But what they are doing is, they are causing uh, negative karma to ripen at a time when you can handle it. So that the effect is minimized. So relying on dharma protectors and dharma protecting gods doesn't mean getting all your desires fulfilled. But it does mean that it's for your greater good, for your longer term good. So, um, <clears throat> so here is the meaning of the best methods is the four practices. Then, in order to take the unexpected as the path, whatever you suddenly meet should be joined with meditation. That's the next slogan. What we don't expect, what we don't expect when they turn up, how do we take them onto the path? That means how do we make use of them huh, to let us grow mature or grow spiritual? By joining them with meditation. Huh, immediately. But what this means here by meditation is not talking about sitting meditation. It's talking about mind training. So whatever unexpected things that occur, whether unexpected fortune or misfortune, right, you need to bring them into mind training. Right? When if it is fortune, when it is good things, nice things that you're experiencing, don't get carried away. Right? Just know that there is a skillful way to enjoy ripening of good karma then there's an unskillful way of enjoying the ripening of good karma. Most of us, what we do is, when happiness turns up, we make it into a cause for suffering. We do. We have all sorts of ways of doing that. Lojong is teaching us the opposite. When suffering arises, turn it into happiness. Turn it into happiness. The fourth point is basically two points here. 
Uh, it's called presentation of a lifetime's practice in summary. Uh, what it means is, uh, what you need to do uh, in summary, uh, five things in doing this life. And then these five things in the context of when you are dying. That's the meaning of a whole lifetime. Uh, so a summary of the pith instructions, the essential instructions, are the five powers. Put them into practice now, during this time, in this lifetime. So what are these five powers? So these five powers, the first one is called the power of intention. So every day when we wake up, we should rely on this power of intention. And to say, I will make use of today, the rest of the day, to do my best to relate all the experiences that I have to Lojong, to mind training, to the best of my ability. So you don't have to just start and think, oh, I have to do this my whole life. You can try it and say, every Friday, I'm going to practice this. The whole day. And so that's the power of intention. The next one is called the power of acquaintance, of familiarization, to familiarize. And this is uh, to get, to do it again and again and again. The training in these two bodhicitta, ultimate bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta, which we already discussed in the second point, what these two are. Then the third is called the power of uh, positive seed. What that is talking about is the supporting practices. Uh, the main practice is the practice of the two bodhicittas, uh, to, be, to acquaint our minds with uh, training them. How do we do that? Through sowing a lot of positive seeds. So whatever practices that we can do uh, to enhance that, uh, of the body, speech, and mind, we do that. The power of seed. Then the power of um, kind of swift uh, eradication, cutting off, which is that we have to be determined to cut off self-grasping, self-fixation. Now, how do we have a strong resolve with self-grasping and self-fixation? Uh, again, we cannot just pretend and say, oh, I want to get rid of it. Uh, first, we need to be convinced about how harmful it is. So there are many texts, teachings that you can read uh, that, that get you to kind of reflect on uh, how counterproductive self-grasping is. And, and when, when that begins to arise in your own mind that it's harmful, then it's a lot easier to be determined to cut self-fixation. Then the fifth is the power of prayer. And here prayer means you call upon the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas 
to support uh, your practice of the two bodhicittas. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, you say, you know, everything that I've done today, uh, whether successfully or not successfully, uh, in terms of training the mind, may it all uh, further inspire me to practice the two bodhicittas. May I not be separated from this. At the time of death, the same five powers, but slightly different emphasis. So then, the power of seed, remember the uh, positive seed, the supporting practices? At the time of death, or when you are dying, when you know that you are dying, give away all your stuff. Start giving them away. From a practitioner's perspective, it's good to be told that you have a terminal disease. Because the fact is, we all have a terminal disease. It's called death. Uh, but because nobody told us that, you know, then we live as if we are going to live forever. I mean, frankly, if you ask me, I probably will say, yeah, I don't want to know when I'm going to die. But really, from a Dharma perspective, it's good to be told. Huh? You have two more years. Huh? You have six more months. Then you're like, okay, now time to start preparing. So they say, give away. Huh? Give away your stuff. Huh? You have two cars, give away one. You don't need it. And then in the end, give both away. And start giving them away. Then they actually say, you cannot just give them away to people that you love and care about. In fact, it actually says it's dangerous to do that. Why? Because there's a lot of sankut. There's a lot of ties. You have all kinds of expectations on your kids and grandkids and all of that. They have all kinds of expectations from you. So when you give them all your wealth, this wealth that you have accumulated comes with a certain kind of burden. And if you only give it to them, then all the burdens go to them. Of course, it's our culture, and realistically, you are going to give your, to your descendants. But also try, if you can, first of all, do not have them be so dependent or expecting that they are going to get everything. First thing. Second thing, Give at least half away to people, causes that are not connected to you. As in, like relative. Give for the good of others. Because that kind of giving will purify 
the wealth that you are giving to your descendants. Otherwise, it will burden them. No, we Chinese have a saying, right? Wealth doesn't go beyond three generations. Karmically, it's because of this. Because the especially great wealth is usually accumulated slightly in an unskillful way. Yeah? Wealth is accumulated often at the cost of other people's suffering. And when other people suffer, they resent. Their resentment is directed at you. It's stuck to the money that you have made. And that comes with the type of burden that gets transferred. Not karma, right? Negative karma doesn't transfer. We are owners of our own karma. So in a way, yes, it is their karma. But the immediate kind of catalyst for their negative karma to ripen is your impure wealth that you have dumped on them. So we have to be careful about that. In fact, in Islam, there is a tradition of zakat. And the idea of zakat is that zakat purifies their wealth. Islam started as a merchant religion, as in it was a religion that was for the merchant class of Mecca and Medina. So the Prophet never discouraged uh, business. But in his own way, he also understood that wealth accumulated has a certain uh, burden that if you don't purify it, then it, it has a heavy burden that will sink you in a way. So here, you have to give to other worthy causes. And the other point I want to make is, sometimes, you know, we think that the sign of our love and care for our next generation is how much stuff or wealth we leave them. And they also think like that. And if you happen to have money, your kids will fight over it, not even because necessarily that they're greedy, but because you have equated material good with the extent of your love for them. See what kind of suffering that you are, have created in, in that situation. So if you have kids now, if they're still young, change this culture. Kind of raise them in a way to understand that, you know, whether you leave them anything or not, they should not be concerned about that. Because sometimes too, parents think that if I spend all my time making a lot of wealth and give to them, that is how I show them I love them. But what that means is you have wasted all the time that you could have shown them your love by being with them. Instead, you are somewhere else working and accumulating that and giving it to them before you die. What we want them to have is happiness. It's not money per se. It's not wealth itself. It's happiness. How can we really give them happiness? 
And that's important to think about. Next is aspiration prayer. So we pray at the time of death. May we be born in a state that is most conducive to practicing, to continuing our practice. Then the power of eradication, which is cutting off all attachment to this life. Because there's no point. It's not as if if you attach very strongly, you don't have to die. If that worked, then, yeah, then go ahead, do it. But no, that's not possible. So by that time, it's better to say, okay, I'm done, ta-ta. Time to go to the next destination. To be dragged there is a lot more painful than to go there by yourself. Right? Then you are in control. Of course, you have to train now to have that kind of courage when the time comes. Then fourth is intention. So now you make strong intention and say, even in my death, may it be a cause of happiness for others. That time especially, think of all your enemies and say, oh, I'm going to make them so happy when I drop dead. (laughs) And the power of acquaintance is to practice this mind of being willing to go. To go joyfully and happily. Because this has been a good life. And you can look forward to an even better one in terms of training the mind. So these are the five powers while in this life and at the time of death. So we have five, six, and seven. Three more of these points to be covered on Wednesday. time, even before Buddha's time, uh, there's already traditions of making offerings to the dead. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, Gaya, which now we call Bodhgaya, is one of the places in India where people go uh, to practice uh, making offerings to ancestors, uh, deceased ancestors. So, so in that sense, it's even pre-Buddhist. So then when Buddha started to teach, uh, Buddha just simply accepted that that's, yeah, that's part of 
you know, uh, practices that can be done to benefit uh, the dead. Uh, except that you know, the Buddha will add and say that the best kind of offering uh, is the offering that is done through making offerings to uh, the Mahasanga. These uh, rituals, in a way, You know, you, you can have kind of different levels of understanding as to what's going on. Uh, surprisingly, um, again, another famous uh, Confucian, uh, three generations or four generations after Confucius, uh, is this great Confucian, Shunzi. Uh, Shunzi actually was one of the most, I think, articulate Confucian teachers. Unfortunately, uh, his contribution to Confucianism was kind of pushed aside uh, in later Confucianism. Um, but he wrote these essays that are so clear. And there's one essay that he wrote called uh, Regarding Rituals. I like that uh, writing a lot. Uh, he said many things in there, but one of the most amazing things I think he said in there is he says, um, ordinary people, uh, or fools, he called them, uh, practice ritual thinking that it will create some magical effect. Uh, but the Junzi, uh, uh, the gentleman, the cultured person, the Junzi, practices ritual as an adornment. And that means as a way uh, to adorn uh, their goodness. So he gave the example, he said, uh, when, when there is a drought, uh, it is the emperor's job uh, to perform uh, the ritual for praying for rain. But it will be a foolish and irresponsible emperor if his only way uh, in the face of a drought is to pray. Uh, he says a good emperor will store up uh, grain uh, and food so that in drought years, he can release this out to benefit others. But then he says, that's not enough. You see, that's the main job of the emperor, right? to do the practical thing of preparing for drought years. But what about ritual? Then, in drought years, the emperor should perform these great rituals of praying for rain. Why? Because it soothes the emotions of his people to see that we have a kind emperor uh, who is going on his knees begging heaven for rain to come. So he says, not because uh, by going on his knees rain is going to come. He says, you'd be a fool to think that that's going to happen. But in other words, he understood ritual 
as therapy. And I think Buddha too understood ritual as therapy. He criticized ritual when people related to ritual as magic. If you look in the suttas, whenever any kind of criticism of ritual, it's when people treat ritual as magic. But he used ritual, practiced ritual, when it was used as therapy. The skillful use of ritual. Yes, so one more. Mm -hmm. So we do more enough for saying this. So we can be more enough for saying and with no offense in mind. I seem to be seeing that you just are married and related in the first place. Very what? Something like a very Oh yes, why not? Oh, many, even hidden. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. It's fashionable. It's, it's fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know, as therapy, as skillful use, sure. And there's a story about the, uh, uh, again, a Zen story. Uh, the, this one cheeky student, you know, uh, walking with the teacher at night. So the teacher was carrying a lamp. And then the student said, Master, uh, if someone is really enlightened, can he see in the dark? So it's a, it's a question with double meaning, right? So it's meaning like, you know, it doesn't mean like this lamp, but it also has meaning about this lamp. So it's testing the teacher. Teacher said, yeah, of course. If someone is enlightened, they can see in the dark. So then the students say, so why are you carrying this lamp? Yeah, so it's like saying, you know, either you're not enlightened, right? Or, or uh, what other reason could you be, you know? So, so why are you carrying this lamp? He asked the teacher. And the teacher said, so that unenlightened people like you won't bump into me. Oh, no, 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 it's just a good story that I thought, you know. <laughs> so these witty teachers, you know, like, uh, in order, like, you know, people who cannot see like you won't bump into me. <laughs> so uh, let's dedicate merit. Uh, again, uh, I'm not necessarily doing any kind of recitation. Uh, so let's just uh, think uh, uh, with our minds, uh, open our hearts and say that whatever uh, merit, uh, whatever good that we have accumulated together uh, here uh, tonight, this evening, uh, we dedicate it uh, to the successful practice of mind training, uh, the actualization of bodhicitta uh, in the two aspects of relative and ultimate bodhicitta for the benefit of all beings. And we register 
express our gratitude uh, and appreciation uh, to all those uh, that have contributed to make uh, this place possible, this temple, this organization, all the beings seen and unseen that are around here, that come here, uh, we dedicate this merit to them so that they can continue to provide uh, the conditions uh, that we need, uh, that we enjoy uh, to learn the Dharma, uh, that which truly liberates us from the suffering of confusion. Have a good night. On behalf of Hong uh, Kong and Hong uh, Kong Institution Group, I wish to thank the uh, Dharma speaker here, Dr. Hong Lai, for his interview for this Hong Kong. I wish to uh, invite uh, the secretary of uh, our Institution Group, Dr. Yuri, to present a token of decision to our speaker. Uh, 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 brothers and sisters, please go to the before we leave. First bow, second bow, third bow. Thank you, Amir Bofong. See you all on uh, Wednesday. This is the last session. And uh, before you leave, please ensure that uh, you register yourself because we need the contact list to contact you. Thank you. <laughs> For official purpose. Uh, thank you for coming. I see you on this coming university. Thank you for listening to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting our mission to foster a deeper understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, to build meaningful community, and to integrate contemplative teachings into everyday life. We invite you to make a donation online at udharmanc.com or make a purchase at our store, tibetanspirit.com. Thank you. May all beings benefit.